The Bible reading today is from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I knew it. If you persist with God and Christianity for long enough, you end up with a list of thou shalt nots. You come in and uh, they talk loads about grace and relationship and Jesus and nice things like that. But in the end, cold, hard rules are waiting for you. It may well be that there are some people here this morning thinking that kind of thing um, after that Bible reading that we've just heard. Perhaps you are someone who come along to St. Ebbs and you're not totally sure what you think about Christianity. And you might have noticed that we seem to do a lot of saying that Christianity is all about what God has done for us. And it's it's all about relationship with him through Jesus. And you've thought to yourself, well, that's interesting because I thought it was all about basically being moral. And now we've had that reading thing, oh, it was about being moral all along. I mean, they're literally carved in stone at the front of the church building, aren't they? And even amongst those of us here who are definitely Christians, you kind of think, well, God has done loads of great stuff for me in the past, and I think that Jesus is great, but in the end, there is going to come a point where I've just got to get my head down and keep some rules. God is very nice to us when we fail, but that's basically what it is. Jen Wilkin is an excellent Christian author and she's got a book on the Ten Commandments and she says 
that the Ten Commandments suffer from a PR problem. They're seen by many as the obsolete utterances of a thunderous, grumpy God who seems neither likable nor relatable. And yet, the Bible is full of people who, who look at the law or the, the commands of God and they react very strangely to them. So Psalm 1 verse 2 says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119 is like a five-page long love letter to the law of God. Verse 32 of it says, I run in the path of your commands. At the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John says, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. It's a slightly different way. At the end of uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 18 and 19, if you flick over to that, the, uh, Exodus 20, verse 18 and 19, the people hear the commandments of God and the frightening context that they come in and their response is not nothing. It's not oh, rules, but trembling with fear. So you've got to ask the question, why would people respond with joy and delight all the way through to trembling in response to the law of God? And to see some answers to that this morning, we're not going to kind of work through all 10 of the commandments one by one. Um, but instead, I want to make three observations about what these commandments are all about. Far from grace and God and Jesus being the bit that we tell people at the start before we get on to stuff like the Ten Commandments, I want to say this morning that the Ten Commandments are all about grace. They're all about God and they're all about Jesus. Those are the three things we're going to see. Why don't I pray for us as we come to look at them together. Father, we pray uh, with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we'd see wonderful things out of your law. We pray that as we see them, you would get us ready to run in the path of your commands. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing, the Ten Commandments are all about grace. That is, they are all about God's undeserved, unmerited kindness. We say that this chapter, Exodus 20, is the Ten Commandments, but in some ways the most important sentence in the chapter is before it gets to the actual commandments. It's there in verse 2. Some people call this commandment zero. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's important because it reminds us that uh, the Ten Commandments come as part of an unfolding story in the book of Exodus. They're not just kind of floating commandments, but they come as part of this story. And what's happened already in the story is that God has acted to save his people, not because of anything that they've done, but just because they were his and he loved them. He'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt. You might remember if you've been coming along. And had they done anything at that point? No, they, they just moaned and, 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 and suffered. He brought them miraculously through the Red Sea. All they've done at that point is panic, we're told. And Moses said to them, God is going to look after you. You need only be still. He provided bread for them in the wilderness and water. And all they'd done at that point was grumble about how hungry and thirsty they were. 
So the, the order of Exodus and the order of Exodus chapter 20 is really, really important. God doesn't save his people because they obey his rules. He saves them totally irrespective of that. I mean, imagine, just imagine if God had come to the people of Israel while they were still in Egypt, while they were still uh, in, in slavery and suffering, and he'd said to them, well, look, I might be able to help you, um, but before I do that, I need you just to sign here, here, and here to say that you're going to follow my commandments. Would they have done it? Well, perhaps they would. Perhaps they would have been desperate enough. But he would have been a very different sort of a God, wouldn't he, if he'd done it that way? He'd be a God who saves only if there's something in it for him, rather than, as, rather than a gracious God of rescue, as he actually shows himself to be. And it's the same today. We don't live in Christian ways in order to get God to save us or help us. The saving and the helping comes as an act of grace alone. It's built into the structure of Exodus. It's built into the way that this chapter flows. God's saving grace comes before the law. So they're all about grace in that sense. But they're all about grace in another way, which is the Ten Commandments themselves are absolutely shot through with grace and kindness from God. God had saved his people from Egypt, and the whole point of doing that, he said, was to bring them to himself, to bring them into relationship with himself and with one another. And these commandments show us how those relationships with God and with one another can be joyful and healthy. The first four commandments, the ones on that side at the back of the room, first four commandments have to do with how we relate to God well, and the other six, how we relate to other people well. So they're they're a way of giving structure to a relationship. And then you look at the actual detail of the commandments themselves, and you think, these are just good for life and for the world. So uh, over to verse 8, for example. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What kind of a God builds rest and recalibration just into the structure of life. Only, only a good God, a kind God who understands. Or uh, verse 16, to take another. Don't, don't give false testimony. Always, always tell the truth. And where, where that doesn't happen in a particular relationship or in a particular society, where, where people say stuff and you just don't quite know to what extent what they say matches up to reality, that's corrosive to trust and where trust gets eroded so societies are undermined and the poppies that a number of us are wearing I guess speak to what happens when trust and relationship in society is eroded to such an extent. Verse 17 for another example, don't covet don't want stuff that is someone else's. I mean just imagine the world if everybody did that everybody was happy with what they had. Indeed felt able to give away some of what they had rather than feeling the need to grab stuff from other people. Would that be the end of all wars? I don't know, but certainly certainly most of them. By giving us these commands, God is giving us a charter for human flourishing. Saying this, this is how life is going to work properly. And isn't that gracious of him? to do that for us. Why, why, should, why should God have to tell the people he's created, here's how you're best going to live, here's how you're best going to flourish? He could easily have said, 
Organize your own affairs. I've got you out of Egypt. I've got you out of trouble. Just sort yourselves out from this point onwards. When I was in year nine, um, I had a teacher who said to us at the start of the year, we only have one rule in this class. Always do what is right. Well, you can imagine how that went. Absolutely useless. We, we all did what was right in our own eyes. And um, it, was, it was chaos until some more senior teacher had to come in and put some boundaries in place. God here says to us, I'll tell you what's right. I'll tell you what's right. It's for your good. It's going to help you flourish. It's going to help you relate well to me and to other people. It's going to help you live along the grain of the world as I've made it. These commands, maybe counterintuitively, free us. This week I came across um, an essay by uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, and in it he says, imagine a, a kind of a plateau arising out of the sea, and it's got a flat, grassy top, and on the top there are loads of children playing. And there's a wall around the edge of the thing, and that wall means that the kids can kind of run around and play whatever games they want to and have all sorts of fun, and it's wild because they're kept safe by it. He says, uh, so long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But then he says, but the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. They did not fall over, but they were all huddled in terror in the center of the island, and their song had ceased. Can't help but wonder, by the way, whether that's a, a picture of our culture. Got, got rid of the walls that Christianity had put around us, thinking we don't, we don't want walls, we want freedom. And what we've reaped is fear. But here is the voice of God saying, you can run in the path of these commands. These are a route to life and flourishing for you. Ten Commandments are all about grace. Secondly, they're all about God. You remember, the great agenda of this book of Exodus is that God would be known. Again and again, uh, he's, he's, said, he's announced what he's going to do, and he said, I'm going to do that so that you may know that I am the Lord, or so the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, or so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. That's what he's doing in Exodus. He's, he's, he's making himself known to the world. And that's why this sermon series has been called Behold Your God. We're reading here a book about God making himself known, showing everybody who he is and what he's like. And so you've got to ask the question, at a pivotal moment, in a book all about God making himself known, why does he give ten instructions? In fact, this chapter 20 is the first time in the book of Exodus that he's spoken directly to his people as a whole. And this is what he says to them. Why? Well, partly because these laws themselves make God's character known. In each case, they, they line up with who he is and what he's like. So, verse 3, he says no other gods because he is utterly unique. Verse 4, don't, don't try and make an image of me, he says, because I am unrepresentable. There, there aren't any categories that I'll fit into. He goes on to say, where my people turn away from me, verse 5, you'll find me to be a jealous God, 
not a covetous God wanting things that aren't his, but, but jealous, loving the people who are his so much that he, he, won't, he won't have them ruining their lives by running after other gods. He says, I'm, I'm a, a just God, a God whose punishment is severe, as in the case of Adam and Eve, it lasts for generations. But a God whose love over the page lasts forever. Keep going. Verse 7. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. That's a command that makes sense when you realize that God's great concern in this book of Exodus is that his name would be known. And he says, I don't want my people cheapening my name, my, my reputation, treating it like it's a small thing that you can bet on. Verse 11. He's the God who made the world and designed people for rest. Verse 13, he he is the one who gives life and who treasures it and hates to see it wrongly taken away, as we remember today. Verse 14, he's a God of absolute faithfulness. He commits himself to his people and he expects his people to behave in the same way for each other in marriages. Verse 15, I'm the God who gives everybody what they have. I apportion everything. Don't short-circuit that by stealing other people's stuff. We could go through every command. The law reveals God's perfectly good character. It's all about him. But here's the really amazing part, I think. Not only does the law just in and of itself make God known, but God is made known as his people live out his character, as the law expresses it. As the Ten Commandments, as the law of God is worked out in the lives of his people, he is making himself known to the world. Last week in chapter 19, uh, we saw chapter 19, verse 6, that God had given a special role to his people, to the people of Israel. He would said, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So all of God's people, he said, you're all priests. Priests are people whose job it is to represent other people to God and God to other people. So the people of Israel, as they lived out these commandments, were a living demonstration to the rest of the world of the character of God. That's a a priestly ministry that all of them were given. An unbelievable privilege that they are drawn into God's great project of making himself known to the world and the same thing is still true today God's people no longer a a nation in an ethnic or political sense but um, don't worry about turning to it but the apostle Peter in the New Testament takes these words from Exodus and he applies them to all Christians to Jews Gentiles people scattered all over the place even in Oxford And he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that's a bit like Exodus 19, isn't it? You you are priests. You've got a job of, of declaring God's praises. And then he goes on to say, very much like Exodus 20, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. So still today in 2023, and even here in Oxford, part of how God is making himself known to the world is as his redeemed people live out his character. This is the first moment in the book of Exodus where God's people are given a role, an active role, in God's purposes. His purpose is to make himself known, and so far they've just had a passive role. They've just been rescued. That's all they've done. But this is the first moment now where God is inviting his people into the privilege of being involved actively in his great plan to make himself known. He says, live out who I am. I'm going to say a bit more in just a second about how our relationship with these commandments is slightly different uh, now to in the Old Testament. But insofar as these Ten Commandments are still reflections of God's character, and by the way, why wouldn't they be? God hasn't changed. The commandments haven't changed. Insofar as these still tell us what God is like, we still live in light of them so that we can make God known. Ten Commandments are all about grace. They're all about God. And then thirdly and finally, they're all about Jesus. I was chatting to somebody this week about Ten Commandments, and they said, when you look at these commandments, they don't look that difficult to follow, really. Don't commit any murders. Okay. Don't have other gods. How hard can that be? But I think if you look a little bit more carefully at them, that's not really the case. Um, one commentator really helpfully um, suggests that the commandments are about words. Sorry, sorry again. The commandments are about thoughts, and then words, then deeds, then deeds, then thoughts, then words. I'll show you that in a sec. But they, that is, they start and end by focusing on our inner life, by focusing on what's happening in our desires and our hearts and our thoughts. So verse 3, um, you shall have no other gods before me. That is, you shouldn't love or desire anything more than you desire God. Verse 4 kind of develops it a little bit further. You, you should love God on his own terms. So they start focused on what's happening in our hearts and in our thoughts. And then if you flick over to the, the very final one, verse 17, you shouldn't want or desire stuff that belongs to other people. So we're back in the realm of our hearts, our thoughts, our desires. So to start with two commandments that are all to do with what's going on in our hearts and then end with another one that's to do with what's going on in our hearts helps us to see that actually all ten of these commandments really come down to what happens inside us in our hearts. That's why I think Jesus said that the commandments are all about our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said things like, you've heard, don't commit murder, but I'm telling you that if there's anger and hatred in your heart, if you, if you, if you call someone, you fool, you've committed murder. He, he, he said in, in, on, a, on a number of the different commandments, really, it comes down to what's happening in your hearts. And Jesus wasn't innovating when he said that. He was just telling us what the laws were all about in the first place. So that they're about what's happening in our hearts, and they're all-encompassing. 
So as we've already said, the first four commandments are to do with how we relate to God. Thoughts, words, deeds in relation to God. And the second six commandments from verse 12 onwards are all to do with how we relate to other people. Deeds, words, thoughts. So if you take how we relate to God and how we relate to other people, that is basically the whole of life, isn't it? So when Jesus said that the summary of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, again, he's not saying something new. He's explaining to us what was always there. And um, when you think about them that way, these commandments set an extraordinarily high bar, don't they? The requirements of God are love for him and love for others in every situation right from our hearts. And so it's small wonder that uh, in verse 19, the people are terrified because they recognize that they're faced with a perfectly holy God who's got perfectly holy standards. Verse 20 speaks about the law as a test. And it's a test that we fail, each of us. So these Ten Commandments help us to see just how far short we fall. In the old um, Anglican communion service, at the start of the service, uh, all Ten Commandments would be read out And after each one, we'd all say, Amen, Lord have mercy. Amen, this is good and right. Lord have mercy, I haven't kept it. And the response of the people of Israel in verse 19, when they had those kind of realizations, is to realize that they need somebody to stand between them and God. If he's this kind of a God with these kind of standards, they can't just deal directly with him as people who've sinned and fallen short. So they say to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Don't let him get too close to us, given who he is and who we are. They realize, I need somebody to stand before God on my behalf. And that's what Moses was. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the better Moses. Tells us that somebody, (laughs) only one, has perfectly obeyed the law of God. Commandments are given to the whole nation of Israel, but there's only one Israelite, indeed only one person in all of history who's kept them perfectly. And yet that same man also paid the price for our failure when he died on the cross. And so his perfect obedience of the Ten Commandments can count as ours if we'll trust in him. In Hebrews it says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. And then it goes on, therefore, let us fix our thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge our apostle and high priest. So when we read the Ten Commandments, they say to us, fix your thoughts on Jesus. He obeyed the law of God with all of his heart in all situations and he has fully 
paid the price that we owe for having failed. Fix your thoughts on him. Trust him. See, as we read these Ten Commandments, how high the standards are, how low we are in sin, and therefore how great what Jesus has done is. Maybe you're here today and you are very conscious of your failure in these regards. You feel way too bad for God. It's quite a common way to feel. Maybe you're here and you think, well, I can totally empathize with the Israelites hearing this and feeling terrified. It is terrifying. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. He's kept them, all of them. And his obedience can be counted as yours. Very briefly, uh, just as we come towards a conclusion. Um, the fact that these Ten Commandments are all about Jesus, that means now that Jesus has come, our relationship with these commandments has changed a little bit. I don't think they are binding on us in quite the same way as they were for the Israelites to whom they were first given. They were part of a particular covenant, a particular arrangement between God and his people, and we are under a new covenant, Jesus teaches us. And uh, in this new covenant, for example, I think the Sabbath, for example, is no longer an absolute uh, requirement for us because Jesus is the one who gives us Sabbath rest, the New Testament teaches us. So I think we relate to it very slightly differently. But even so, here is the character of God on display, the unchanged, as beautiful as ever, character of God. And so here is a way of living that lines up with the way that the world is made and with the way that we are made and with the God who God is. And so the Ten Commandments still come to us and say, will you respond to God's grace, to God's saving grace, by lining up your life with these things? As I say that, I wonder if there's one perhaps one or more of these areas where you realize that your life isn't quite matching up with it. Maybe in the area of verse 7, perhaps. You just recognize that you, you are treating God like he's not a very big deal. Maybe verse 14, you're, what you're doing with your sexuality isn't in line with God's design. Maybe verse 16, the relationship between your words and the truth is looser than it needs to be. I don't know what it is for you, and, and doubtless for each of us there's multiple. Whatever it is, a useful thing to do uh, when we get home today might be to look through these Ten Commandments again more slowly than we've had chance to here, and to say, Amen, Lord have mercy. To recognize I'm, I'm falling short here in this area, this area. And then fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's a very important next step to take. He has done it on your behalf. Don't despair because you can still stand before your maker if you're in him because of what Jesus has done. And then decide, I'm going to line up my life more with who God is in this area. I'm going to run in the path of his commands. And as you do that, a little bit more of the character of God is put on display to the world. What 
greater privilege could there be this week than being part of God, putting who he is on display as we line up our lives with these things? And the promise comes to us that on the same day in the future, when wars will cease to the ends of the earth, on that same day, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And we are invited into our share in that. Why don't I pray for the Lord's help? Father, as we read these things, we say, Amen. We recognize the goodness and beauty of these commandments and the goodness and beauty of the God they reflect. We say, Amen. And we say, Lord, have mercy. We recognize how far short we fall and how great our need of a saviour, how great our need of someone to stand before you on our behalf. And we praise you for that one, for Jesus. Help us to fix our thoughts on him and to run in the path of your commands. In his name, amen.